where the fun begins. A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. This is Rebel Force Radio. Your source for the Force. Star Wars news and commentary. With Jason Swank and Jimmy Mack. I've seen Star Wars 500 times. Star Wars number one. This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. Now it's time for Rebel Force Radio. We would be honored if you would join us. And honored we are every time you join us here for Rebel Force Radio. The best in Star Wars talk, interviews, conversation, analysis. You name it, we do it right here. All in the name of Star Wars. This week's show for Friday, September 6th, 2019. Just out of Labor Day. So you laborers. Happy belated Labor Day. One thing that's never laborious, and that is talking about Star Wars. And we've got tons of great stuff uh, for you. We are still in the midst of the fallout from D23. We've got some more audio highlights coming at you. Uh, plus a uh, in the can the in the in the can in the cantina we go with the author of the Star Wars historical source book later on in the program W R Miller he's going to be joining us and talking about uh, his latest book and it is something very unique in the annals of uh, of Star Wars literature that's coming up and. Um, as I say, we've got some audio highlights from J.J. Abrams, uh, John Williams, and we're going to be doing a very in-depth look at the Mandalorian trailer. If you were listening last week, you know, we took a couple hours worth of your calls, getting your reaction from all of the happenings at D23. But some of you might have been scratching your head saying, but what, what did Jason and Jimmy Mack think? Well, we're going to share that and so much more here with you this week on RFR, and of course, I'm not alone. I have with me, as always, my good friend and yours from Chicago, Jimmy Mack. Hey, Jason. Hey, Star Wars fans. Yes, we're here still dealing with the fallout from D23 and all the interesting Star Wars reveals that happened there. Uh, last week, I, I agree with you, Jason. I, I think a lot of the focus was on the the rise of Skywalker, and rightly so. I, I think the spotlight should truly be shining on that as we come to the end of the Skywalker saga. Uh, we, we we really should be uh, paying very close attention to everything happening with the rise of Skywalker. But at the at the same time, I don't want to uh, give the Mandalorian any uh, lack of spotlight either. So I, I'm looking forward to getting into that trailer. I mean, the Mandalorian, we're only a couple of months away from that. So we really need to uh, take a deep dive into that. And uh, yeah. check out all the cool things. It certainly seems a lot more connected to the original trilogy vibe, just from uh, first blush to me. It does at least. And obviously, uh, there's no lack of original trilogy alien species, which really propel that show, as far as I'm concerned, into that Star Wars aesthetic zone that I think is really important for us to have those little markers that we could connect to as Star Wars storytelling starts to go off into a vastly different area. It's refreshing to see some of those familiar tropes and sights still being represented in The Mandalorian. Yeah, it is. And that's something that we've been, you know, somewhat 
missing in the sequel trilogy or some of those familiar aliens. We've talked about that a lot on the show. And so to see that familiarity already uh, just with the first few glimpses that we've had of the Mandalorian, I think that it really does um, speak well to the future for that era of Star Wars having a platform. And I, you know, I've said on the show before, I really believe that Disney's approach is that the feature films are going to be for this new generation of fans, fans that they're creating now, cultivating now, uh, in some cases, the grandchildren of the original generation of fans. But Disney Plus seems to be a place where they're kind of focusing their efforts on some of those uh, projects that are really going to excite prequel trilogy and original trilogy fans, the Kenobi series, the Mandalorian, even Cassian Andor to an extent, even though that was a newer film, it certainly found its place. It's setting firmly in the original trilogy era. Um, the Clone Wars coming back on Disney plus. And then of course the animation side, I think is going to be, um, I think it's going to continue in the vein of, of uh, resistance where it's going to be plating up, the galaxy far, far away to uh, the future of the uh, of the franchise in terms of the fandom. So I think that's where things are going to lay. Uh, I'm really excited to hear when I hear John Favreau say things like in the la- last week's episode about how this is, as far as they're concerned, they're making feature films. I mean, that's how they're approaching the Mandalorian. This should be something that could hold up to any of the Star Wars features in terms of, you know, um, visual effects, storytelling, all of that. Yeah. I I mean, that's exactly where you want it to be. That's the thing that has restricted George Lucas from creating a live-action Star Wars TV show for the last decade. He got so frustrated with trying to get his live-action show off the ground, he sold his whole company. (laughs) You know, I mean... (laughs) He, he really folded the cards there and, and, and recognized that with a property as ambitious as Star Wars, you do need to have some major muscle as far as funding goes. And he saw Disney as the place and the advancements in technology, too. I mean, it's gone a long way. What I understand with The Mandalorian is that they're able to see on their screens and monitors what the backdrop is going to be. It's all digitally created sets with real-world elements placed within. So you have some foreground objects, but for the most part, these are actors working in front of blue screen, much like with the prequels. And those elements are actually visible to the filmmakers as they're shooting the scenes. Yeah, it's so, like augmented reality. I yeah. Mean, it's on our phones right now, you know, so I can only imagine what is available to people like John Favreau oh, yeah. instead of a, of a, of a feature. Uh, but, you know, it was interesting, Jim, and they didn't really talk about this at D23. It was a little in the weeds. We covered it here when we did our Star Wars Celebration Chicago um, shows, but they talked a lot about how they had the the opportunity to sort of dip their toes in classic model making and you know the razor crest is was was built as a 3d model you know out of a 3d printer out of someone's basement uh i think john knoll was involved in that at one point and uh so they're not necessarily um immune or allergic to doing it in some of those traditional ways but it's almost like it's like 
a traditional style with a little bit of cutting edge technology like the 3D printing and things like that. Yeah, for sure, for Best sure. Best of both worlds. Which is, I think, you know, the, the, that's the happy balance, you know. The, the, they find that place right in between. Because it can be said that while George was extremely revolutionary in the way that he developed virtual sets, he might have been a little too aggressive right out of the gate with that. As opposed to augmenting his sets, he went full in and didn't yeah. give the actors much to work with at all. I think nowadays, with the technology being where it is, on a shoot like The Mandalorian... Even on the set, the actors are going to have a lot of physical, real-world interaction with their environments, as opposed to you know the prequels, where it was all basically just stand in this green or blue room. Uh, you know, right. I, I think they right. found the happy balance. Well, that balance, I think, was illustrated to me most clearly with Rogue One. I, I think I still think that that film is a masterpiece when it comes to blending the old and the new in such a seamless way. Mm -hmm. And if the Mandalorian is anything like that, then, you know, I'm even more in than I'm in right now. So if you're looking for a Mandalorian shill right now, (laughs) we'll see. I'll reserve judgment, but Uh uh, there's nothing that I see right now on the horizon that makes me the least bit um, concerned. I'm very, very excited for that. I mean, November uh, 12th can't come soon enough. Um, but you know what? I, I got to uh, Jim, the uh, Rebel Force radio answering machine is blinking. And I know we don't normally go to voicemail this early, but this just came in. I got a blink. I got a blinking answering. That's machine. right. We're very technological uh, here at uh, RFR headquarters. Right. So we've got the answering machine. The I got the tape all queued up with the little the little tape, that little cassette <laughs> tape. <laughs> I love those little ones. How small can right. we make this cassette tape? Well, we have the smallest ones. Oh, that could be that could be edited out of context. That's going to be used against us. And we yeah, that could create that. big big problems don't, for us. Yes. Don't make me call my wife down here again. It's, it's official. The headlines read. <laughs> All right, the blinking is going on here. Let's, let's see who uh, who left us a voicemail. Jason, Jimmy, it's Bob Iger with the D twenty three news. I forgot to mention. We're going to do a series called Young Yoda, the High School Years, which follows our favorite green guy from the young age of 300. Should prove popular with the kids. We're going to turn the parking lot in Anaheim to a Tashi station where you could just sit around in the shadows for a price. Not much of a change. (laughs) And uh, the one project I'm most excited about is the guy in the observation bucket. We first saw him in Yavin. He became a human popsicle in Hoth. What happened to him on Endor? Find out. If you can't uh, afford the Disney app or the Disney channel, we've got a little plastic cling you could put on your refrigerator, or better yet, on uh, the screen of your uh, TV, your flat screen, and you could have the uh, guy in the observation bucket with you all the time. What a collectible. Can I use you both for a reference? Sure. Remember, every time you buy something non-Disney, Iger kills a kitten. Well, my four hours in the park are almost up, so i got to run. I wonder if my employee discounts still work. Take care, Jens. <laughs> oh, what an honor. It's four what hours. What an honor. CEO, chairman of the board himself, Bob Iger. Yeah. The big mouse. <laughs> with with stuff, leftover stuff from D23. <laughs> You'll only get that here. Right. You know. Um, That's an exclusive. I'm glad I took that uh, that voicemail. 
I can't believe it's taken the Disney company so long to realize they can charge you money for shade from the sun. Uh, what's taken them so long? I'm sure uh, Universal and uh, all the theme parks, Six Flags everywhere, will be uh, now charging for shade from the sun. But this is like in Spaceballs when they were charging for the oxygen. They had the cancer. Yeah. <laughs> you remember that? We're not far away from that. <laughs> As, as the Disney corporate footprint begins to spread, and, uh, you know, we're, we're up in the big toe right now, Jason, of the uh, Disney corporate footprint. We're, on the, we're, we're, like, underneath the big toe, actually, I think. You know, I got to tell you, when I was waiting with my family for that ferry boat <laughs> to get over to take us out, I might have paid. For some shade. Oh, I really might have. I mean, yeah. you, catch, you catch a desperate mom or dad in the right uh, moment. It doesn't sound so crazy. Would you like this Mickey Mouse umbrella? Yes, I would. $50 sounds great. <laughs> I can <laughs> get a bottle get of water. I'll pay $100. Yeah. That's how they get you with the, the Disney corporate footprint. And again, as I mentioned, you will find Rebel Force Radio on the big toe of that. Wait a second. This just in. Nope. The uh, Disney corporate footprint big toe is actually in Rebel Force Radio's butt right now. I'm sorry oh. to uh, to report is that. that, what that to was? I, I, <laughs> I'm sorry to report I, that to everyone, I, but uh, all the blue I milk I in the sat world. I on a roll won't. of quarters. I, that's <laughs> so thank you, Mr. Iger, for yep. calling in, yep. and um, we hope we do you proud here each and every week on Rebel Force Radio. For sure. All right. You know what? Let's turn to what is this from uh, Twitter? No, this is from Facebook. We're going to turn to Facebook. Jim, you've been challenged. Well, this is an interesting one because uh, I thought it was nothing really until I started looking into it. This comes to us uh, via Facebook and uh, listener Tony, who says, in the Rise of Skywalker teaser, uh, a.k.a. the footage shown at D23, after Palpatine says... Nears its end. You hear a sound similar to the sound when Palpatine fell down the reactor and the blue mist came up. It's some strange synth-like sound. Since there's no visuals, I think they intend that we listen to it. And so Tony says, uh, how about taking that into the RFR sound lab? And so I did. So what Tony is saying here is that in the clip... From the D23 footage, after Palpatine says, Near's its end, what does he say? Your story, your, uh, he your, says journey, your journey, your journey, Near's its end. So after he says his end, you hear a sound. And according to listener Tony, that sound may have its origins in the same sound effect that we hear when Vader throws Palpatine. Mm down the shaft in Return of the Jedi. So I think we've isolated a few sounds in the RFR sound lab. All right. And so uh, we'll start with sound number one, which is Palpatine's death in Return of the Jedi. Oh, there's a little Vader breath right there, which is uh, interesting. Um, So 
So, um, yeah, so obviously Darth Vader throws the Emperor down the shaft, and that's what you hear. So it's let's... a lot of wind. I, I, I mean, that's what I remember from this scene. A very windy. Like... Very, very windy. Yeah. So in uh, scene number two, this is the sound we hear in the Rise of Skywalker trailer, which uh, comes right after Palpatine says his dialogue. Yes, it's him. Interesting. So um, I took the two sounds, isolated them, and put them back to back. And let's see if we can note any sort of similarities between the two sounds. Mm, It's hard to hear any similarities between the two sounds when you play it like that. And I'll tell you why. Could you play that one more time? I I just want to sort of get my back to back. Yeah, yeah, the back to back. Okay, so what we're hearing there is um, a little bit of that wind-like sound that we hear when Palpatine gets thrown down the shaft, then followed by a little bit of that sound we hear in the uh, teaser trailer. Um, But I'm hearing something there. I am hearing something there. So what I did was I isolated the sound from Return of the Jedi and added some effects to it because I hear some effects happening on the teaser trailer sound. I I hear some effects being added to what could be the very same sound that Tony's talking about. I I hear a reverse echo being added. So uh, what I did was I took that little bit of sound and I isolated it. And you only have three sounds, right? I do. Um, Okay. So uh, what's happening here is that some sounds didn't transfer over. If you add it, I can grab it. So I was trying to do it while I was talking and I was... um... Well, you're doing a masterful job of it. I didn't know that you were working on a new sound file. It's incredible. Um, yeah. Do you see the multitasking that goes on, <laughs> folks, in the production of Rebel Force Radio? It's amazing. Not only are we hosting the show, producing the show, but we're actually editing sound clips live right before your eyes and ears. All right. There's three more clips I'm going to hand Ooh, off three. to you. Oh, three. I'm doing this while I'm talking. Okay. So give it just a second. There's four, five, and six. Ooh. I just added them. Into our little uh, shared folder there. I've got them already, okay. man. That's how fast this thing works. It's incredible. All right. So in our next clip, what I've done here is I've taken the Return of the Jedi sound. That sound you hear of all the wind blowing up out of the shaft after Vader throws the Emperor in there. And I've taken that sound and I've added some echo to it and I've faded it out. So you're going to hear... I faded out that sound with some echo. So that starts to create a sound that sounds familiar to the sound I'm hearing a little bit in the Rise of Skywalker trailer. And you'll hear it if, Jason, if you play cut two again, you'll hear that sort of similar sound. Yes, it's him. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so you're, oh, yeah. you're starting to hear it. So, oh, yeah. So what I'm hearing now is a reverse echo fade. 
So, naturally, my next step was to take that Return of the Jedi sound that I added the echo fade to and then flip it over. So now it's reversed. So you're going to hear it reversed. Oh, and I added the Darth Vader breath into it, too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Just, trying to maintain, you know, consistency with the sound. Continuity is key here. So now, now that I've done all that, I've taken... The sound of Palpatine being thrown down the shaft in Return of the Jedi. I've taken a clip out of it, a, a segment out of it. I've added echo to it, and I faded it out. And then I flipped it onto its end and reversed it and added the Darth Vader breath into it in oh, an wow. attempt to recreate this sound. So now I'm going to take these two sounds, the mm-hmm. sound I created out of the Return of the Jedi sound effect, and the sound we hear in the Rise of Skywalker trailer, and I'm going to put them back to back, and you tell me if you hear any similarities. Oh, yeah. Okay. I do. So there's a, there's a similar sound, a springy reverb, reverse echo effect that's being used possibly... On the same sound effect that you hear when the wind rushes out of that chasm on the Death Star 2 after Vader has thrown the Emperor to his assumed doom and destruction. Um, I was able to recreate the sound effect to the best that I could. I, I hear some differences in the pitch when you play them back to back. Jason, if you could play him back-to-back again, number six, and uh, you'll hear my sound effect first, created from the Return of the Jedi sounds, as recommended by Tony, compared to the final sound you hear in the Rise of Skywalker trailer. Wow. Close. It, 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 It is close. I just... When you, as soon as you said reverse, Jim, my mind started working about are they, are they literally implying, if you take the sound effect <laughs> of Palpatine going down that chute, mm-hmm. meeting what we believe to be his demise, reversing it. Yeah. And so, you know, uh, metaphorically, he is coming back. The last time, last thing we heard from Palpatine was... And then this, the next thing we hear is, yeah, well, you know, like it's like the reverse echo. That's um, that's very cool. That's crazy. And for Tony to pick up on that, I mean, it's one thing, you know, for you to be going through all the uh, machinations, but for Tony's ear to like hear that and say there's something there, I would not, uh, having heard the original uh, two back to back. I don't think I would have made that. I wouldn't have have thought that. There's just sometimes things that click on and off in the human mind, the subconscious level that you can't even really put your finger on. Things that trigger, you know, there's something familiar about that. Well, Tony heard it. And I was able to take his sound effect from Return of the Jedi and build it into something very similar to what we hear in the Rise of Skywalker trailer. Is it perfect? Is it exact? No, because there's probably a few elements of this, the secret sauce that were added to that final effect that I'm unaware of. But, I mean, 
crap, I was just doing that on the fly. I, I, it's, it's a little crude in its nature, true, but I think when you put them back to back, I, I, I hear the foundations for the sounds that we hear in the Rise of Skywalker teaser coming from The Return of the Jedi, specifically that sequence Tony is talking about when Vader throws the Emperor to his doom. And, yeah. and this energy between Palpatine's extinction and then his resurrection is amazing. And I love it. I love that. So, only, you know, that's why we have such a great audience of hardcore Star Wars fans. They're getting inspiration from places they can't even quite put their finger on. But there's just something about their inner instinct as Star Wars fans that push them in directions that are shocking, surprising, and oftentimes very accurate. So hats off to Tony. Thank you for bringing that to our attention. No question. I love that this stuff is working on us even subliminally, like Mm -hmm. our subconscious, of course. Why wouldn't it? Why wouldn't it? Our conscious mind is focused on it, so our subconscious mind uh, also is picking up on on those things. I think everyone can relate to listening to the Star Wars soundtracks and being able to place the dialogue beat for beat, you know, because we've just got this muscle memory of how it all plays together so that's awesome that is awesome all right we do have some news this week so uh let's get right to it i have good news for you my lord that's good news come closer i have good news of course we had a slew of media covering uh, d23 jj abrams also had a chance to talk a little bit about the reaction to the footage that was shown at D23 from The Rise of Skywalker. I mean, honestly, I, I really do hope that people uh, respond well, obviously, on these kind of things. And this is not a trailer. This is just a piece we did for D23. But the the fact is we are in the editing room working on the movie. So as much as I do look forward to, you know, getting a sense of what reactions are, you know, always, we have a lot that we're still working on. We have months, you know, to go on this thing. So I, I, I can't, like, talk about it in the past tense or look at, Right. Reactions as like my full time job. Mm. Okay. Well, sure. You know he's still in the in the thick of it, so it's not going to be something that he can spend a whole lot of time. You don't want that in your head. I mean, I, I know what it's like just uh, recording a podcast. We've got uh, people giving us real time feedback on it. You know, damn you, Facebook um, comments. Yeah. So that's 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 tough enough. I can only imagine what the pressure is like here. So uh, no faults there. We did talk last week about redemption. Kelly Marie Tran uh, spoke about that in context with the rise of Skywalker, said that it was her one of her favorite themes, one of the themes that resonated with her. And um, that was also brought up to J.J. Abrams. What about redemption and Kylo Ren? With an actor like uh, Adam Driver, you can never limit what that man can do. I will say, uh, without talking about redemption or not, that uh, he is mind-blowing in this. Like, he, he's, uh, he's brought a whole other level to this. So I, I can't wait for you to see what happens with him. It's pretty fun. Yeah. I'm going to make an observation here about J.J. Sure. He's always very effusive in his praise of his actors. Yes. And uh, I think that it's just a really... I don't for one second, think that he doesn't believe what he's saying. I think he does. He's very complimentary of the people that are displaying their talents. Um, but I also think it's a great crutch. It's a great way for him to shift in a conversation. Yeah. Uh, tell me about uh, Kylo Ren. Well, Adam Driver is just amazing. <laughs> I mean, of course, he's just incredible. So I, it's a very convenient way to fall uh, fall back on the, uh, on the Listen, question. How do you 
how do you even humor a question like that? They're talking about one of the biggest turns for any character in the sequel trilogy. Kylo Ren turning good, which we know is going to happen. I mean, it's been foreshadowed. It's been put up on a silver platter right in front of us. We're just counting down to minutes for when it happens. But we can assume that every film goer who buys a ticket for episode nine is thinking the same way we are. And it's a hu- it's going to be a huge moment when it happens. And I am 100% convinced it's going to happen that Kylo Ren will see the light. He will see the light. How can he be redeemed after stabbing Han Solo through the chest? Well, we're going to get there. This movie will take us to that place where we'll be able to find acceptance with that. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if it's Harrison Ford himself on screen holding our hand and walking us through the whole thing. (laughs) Come on, kid. You're okay. You're yeah. you're okay, kid. Oh, that's all I need to hear. The what ghost would, of Han. The, what's the price that someone would have to pay for to, to find redemption? What is the cost of redemption for someone like Kylo Ren, who killed one of uh, cinema's greatest heroes, one of pop culture's greatest heroes? What does what does a guy have to do? Right, here's what I would do. Himself? Here's what I would do, and this wouldn't be a spoiler or anything, but just. Here's what I would do if I was someone who is going to make a Star Wars movie and found myself painted into this corner. I would have Kylo Ren sacrifice himself in honor of the cause, fully believing that he is going to lose his life to save others. Completely selfless act. Maybe he does even die. But... He gets brought back to life. He does. He gets the full redemption. He is able to live in the light for the rest of his life. But what I would do as a filmmaker is I would strip him of his force abilities after he had made the sacrifice. Sure, maybe he dies in the process. He's He's like an attorney that's getting disbarred? No, 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 no. Maybe he dies in the process, but when he reemerges... You know, when he he resurrects, um, he will find that he can no longer tap into the force. And he lives the rest of his life serving mankind as a mortal man himself. That's how I would do it. That's how I would do it. Strip him of his life. Strip him of his ability to tap into the force. Present him with new life. Without the force, that would be that would be the biggest factor. It's like when um, they wanted to teach Q a lesson in Star Trek, and they they took away his powers, and so he <laughs> had to deal with all of the uh, yeah, fragilities right, of human that. life. Remember that? That would be yeah, right. that would he be fell perfect for the first time, and uh, he was all freaked out. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. Uh, yeah, this is, I mean, that sounds a little bit like, you know, the vampire who gets the, the curse lifted yeah. uh, a little bit. Uh, I don't know. A little I, bit. I'm with you. I think that the redemption thing is going to happen. I also think there's going to be sacrifice involved, but I, I, I don't, but I think he's going to live happily ever after as a, as a blue glowy. Oh, really? I, I okay. Yeah. I, I don't see him getting stripped of his force powers. 
Well, there's really no precedent for that. Um, but I mean, I I like the just I like the idea of it in terms of you know uh, the justice machine of the forest coming down. There is precedent. Ren. You can't get that off. You know, can't get off that easy. There is precedent for it, but it's not cinema canon. It's comic book canon, Dark Horse Comics, the Tales of the Jedi series, and Eula Keldroma. He um, he finds himself living his golden years without any connection to the Force after um, attempting to to join the dark side in an effort to defeat it. He's, he's one of those. And um, his redemption came in the way of a life without the Force. And oh, wow. so, yeah. yeah, Very sad, very tragic. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I, that's how I would do it with Kylo. But I do I actually think it's going to happen that way? Yeah, I know, probably not. But... Um, Everyone is asking J.J. Abrams if Kylo's going to be redeemed. I have to wonder if if some of these reporters are being fed questions, too, you know? I'm always uh, yeah. very aware of the J.J. Uh, Abrams smokescreen and the misdirections. <laughs> uh, like you said earlier in the show, Jason, he's got a history of that stuff. So yeah. I don't know which one of these reporters are playing ball. That clip we heard uh, came from MTV's Josh Horwitz, who is uh, very, uh, very uh, closely connected to any uh, Star Wars media gangbangs that happen. So, you know, with a regular like him, you don't know how he's being programmed. I'm not saying Josh is some sort of shill, but sometimes uh, in interview situations, you do get fed questions. Yeah. You know, yeah. you do get fed questions, so I'm just well, saying. Well, here, that. we're going to go back to Marvelous TV. They're asking, J.J., how close are you to the final edit? Are we, uh, you know, we're just a few months away. Some things are 100%, some things are 2%. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So I have to do the math. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, back at the factory. Yeah. Boy, does he talk fast. My God. Listen to this. Listen to this. Some things are 100%, some things are 2%. You know what I mean? So I have to do the math. Some things are 2%. He was actually talking about milk. Two percent in that. <laughs> no, but he's so fast. Something to hundred percent. Something to, he should have gotten yeah. into a, a career uh, rapping, be a hip hop guy with a tongue that could move that fast. Again, something else that could be edited out of context and hurt us later. <laughs> but uh, so JJ, the reason I wanted to play that clip though is because I'm seeing and reading a ton of spoilers popping up on Reddit, popping up on so-and-so's website, what have you. And I just want to throw that out there, that Abrams is not locked down on the story yet. He doesn't have it in the can. And this is the same thing that happened with Episode 7, where there were tons of 11th hour changes made in the editorial suite that affected the story on a profound level. A profound level. The film was released in December, and there were still tweaks being made all the way up until late November, just prior to Thanksgiving. Maybe even afterwards. I don't know. Maybe even on Thanksgiving Day itself, J.J. was clipping away. Honey, the dressing's getting dry. We have to do something. Oh, no. No, sorry. I'm editing. I'm, I'm not going to stop. I have 2%. I have 100%. I don't know what I'm doing. So, um... <laughs> So, so JJ, hard at work. Um, so, yeah. so all of these rumors that are out there, you may think you know the whole story, but believe me, it's only early September. 
you have no idea what's going to be in that movie when it's all said and done, except for maybe the end, which I believe J.J. has had in his sights ever since he sat down to write the script for Episode 7. Uh, I think J.J. has always been considering the ending, where this is all going to end up. Maybe he's the only person working on these films who's actually thought about that. <laughs> Well, the, the ending first came up when Kevin Smith talked about the opportunity he had to see the ending. He kept calling it the final shot. Uh, J.J. has uh, broadened that to be the final sequence. So here he is uh, talking about that final ending. The ending's the ending. Um, you know, uh, it, it's really been, you know, it, it's been a, a bit unusual in that the, the editing process uh, has been... M- much of what we have in the third act is exactly what we always had. And that's not always the case. A lot of times you're like, the ending doesn't quite, you know, that's, that's not the thing that we've been, uh, you know, playing with. Yeah. Well, in this case, the ending is the ending. So it sounds like that's somewhat uh, written in stone. I don't think there's too much monkeying around with that. As a matter of fact, uh, someone else that knows the ending of The Rise of Skywalker is the maestro himself, John Williams. As he was introducing... Uh, one of his Star Wars pieces, uh, he had this to say about the ending. J.J. Abrams is directing a new film, and I agree he's doing a fantastic job, and I think I won't say anything about it other than the ending. I think we'll just put you all away. I think you will love it. There you go. It's going it's to put us away. We're all going to love it. Wait, so go. we got Kevin Smith talking about it. We got John Williams. He loves it. It's going to put you away. Yeah. Now, keep in mind, Kevin Smith was denied access to information about the last scene. The only thing he could convey to us was that he was told that it's going to be amazing. Maybe John Williams is the one who told him that. No, Kevin, it's going to put you away. <laughs> no, he had the opportunity. Kevin Smith had the opportunity to actually see it while it was... Uh... He saw filming. No, he saw a a shot where he said it featured an actor that he's been watching in all of these films for years deliver an amazing performance. Uh, J.J. Abrams talked him out of visiting the set when realizing the shot in question on that day was the last shot of the film. Okay, so Kevin. Was he was going to be visiting, but J.J. talked him out of it, saying that as a film fan, the shot is so memorable that he'd want to witness it on the big screen. Right. It will melt your mind, is what Kevin says. Melting mind. J.J. says it'll melt your mind. John Williams says it will just put you over. Okay, here it is. Kevin Smith's visit to the Episode Nine set though the director obviously couldn't reveal what and who he saw while there. He described one Star Wars actor giving a career best performance. Who do you think he saw giving a career best performance? Carrie Fisher. Carrie Fisher impossible because she wasn't actually on the episode nine set, Jason. I know. What are you doing, man? Uh, I know, I know. Uh, who knows? Who knows? I don't even want to, I don't even want to speculate. No, I am though. I am. Oh, because Mark Hamill. So many people have said Hamill. So many people have said Hayden Christensen. But I think knowing what I know of 
the Rise of Skywalker and the enhanced and spotlighted role C-3PO is supposed to be playing, I think he saw a performance by Anthony Daniels. I think he's talking about C-3PO. Red-eyed C-3PO? Maybe. Maybe uh-huh. not. Uh-huh. But maybe. Um, I think we're going to see something from 3PO toward the end of the film. That's going to be quite revealing. Because we've always heard these films are told from the perspective of the droids, R2 and 3PO. Well, obviously R2 can't communicate in English any of the story. Um, and he's under a tarp anyway, so who cares about R2, right? No. Yeah, I think that <laughs> I think that whole perspective of the droids, I think that uh, that went out the window at the end of Return of the Jedi. Uh, I, don't, I don't even really think that it... Uh, yeah, R2 is there for R2 the major beats in uh, the prequels. 3PO is a cameo at best through much of the prequels. Um, in Ep One, and then he gets he gets on the bus in the middle of Ep Two. Well, Ep Two is great. Ep Two has got a lot of three PO. Ep Three is just you know he's just the manservant. He's just the butler. But what the does pad- it matter? I mean, R two was there, so right. That's right. That's you fine. have so, your two droids as as long as one is being represented. Yeah, I'm but like I, you, Jason. I, I would the- prefer to see them always together. I'm the one who would always prefer to see R2 and 3PO together. And you'll say, oh, well, in Empire they were they were separated. Well, yeah, I mean, it's good to have them separated every once in a while, but for the most part, I always want them together, you know? Uh, if you well, wanna... But they were receiving equal amounts of action in Empire. You know, they didn't have one on the shelf in Empire. They, right. they had their own adventures that were going on yes. concurrently. Yeah, the R2 under a tarp. I'm still having a hard time wrapping my head around. All I know is that it was probably done to sell more of those Sphero BB-8s is, is the only reason I could think of. So and they he, started selling Sphero R2s, so and that didn't really save them, so so much for that. Um, hey, let's go. To, let's talk about the Mandalorian here. We got uh, Giancarlo Esposito, um, who's playing Moff Gideon. He is the badass Imperial that we see in the, uh, in the trailer, and uh, Giancarlo was... Also in the uh, press gaggle there throughout the happenings at D23, and they were asking about his character, Moff Gideon. Of course, he didn't want to give too much away, but he gave a few little tidbits here. We all need order in our world, and this is an empire that's fallen and has no order. Moff Gideon is very, very intelligent and very knowledgeable. He's very particular about his operation and what he does. He's certainly rising. He was an imperial uh, soldier before the empire fell. He uses all of what he's learned and has been risen through the ranks because he has some sense of order. Uh, but yet, he can be cruel, and he, cannot, he will not withstand fools. And he's a traveler. He gets around and knows everything, and no one knows why. Ooh. Yeah, he, he sound, Giancarlo sounds like a very passionate, uh, almost methody kind of actor. Like, he's really into the psychology of this Moff Gideon character. So you can really tell he's getting very, very deep into uh, the makeup of this guy. Uh, but it started making me wonder, Jim, like, you, what is the role at this point? We're talking about six years after the events of Return of the Jedi, six years after the fall, after the fall of the Empire. Uh, you know, as a man who's trying to make his way in the universe, what is a guy 
do that is a imperial officer are they still trying to hold on to control on various systems yeah. throughout the galaxy are they creating their own rebellion their own insurrection I wonder what kind of empire we're going to find. I'm led to believe, yes, absolutely, you're dealing with a lawless society that has spread galaxy-wide in the wake of the empire losing control because they exerted so much control that you're probably dealing with a population that's grown very complacent over the years that the empire has been so controlling they ju- you just fall into a groove and you know you get so used to the government telling you everything to do where to stand where to set, sit where to go to work where to go to school etc who to be friends with what to say that uh, people grow complacent and so when all of that order is removed they're like tops spinning out of control and so I think that wherever these moths are stationed with their stormtrooper garrisons, etc., they still try to maintain control over the population because that's what society demands. And, of course, there's the power vacuum that they all want to fill. And this stuff was often mentioned in the old Expanded Universe books where you would have imperial... Officers then become these warlords, and they were uh, taking over star systems, etc., and exerting their law and their order. And oftentimes, imperial warlords would start going head-to-head with each other in order to try to um, gain control of the other warlords' territory and population. Uh, so it's 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 quite possible that Moff Gideon is not representing the the remnants of the empire at large but perhaps he is a warlord type figure just trying to mm. secure his own power. Yeah. And so you've got all of these splintered groups um jockeying for position and yes. trying to use all that they've learned as imperial officers to take control so they can all be you know, the the chancellor or the ruler or what have you. Yeah, of their even their own little, you know. Right. Their own little banana republics or what have you. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, yeah. but, I, you right. know, I see it from a very small level to being on a very large scale, it, it affecting the entire galaxy. It's not just like the rebels blew up the Death Star 2 and then everything just magically fell into place. There's going to be growing pains along the way. There's going to be lawlessness. There's going to be no authority. There's going to be people trying to assume authority along the way and assume power. And yeah. uh, the best way to do it uh, in the wake of the Empire is probably continuing their methods of controlling people. And so, but Moff, he, he, Giancarlo mentions something very specific about his character is that he always seems to be in the know. He always has the information and no one seems to know why. Mm. What makes him different? What kind of connections does he have? Is he going to maybe evolve into some sort of anti-hero or mm. maybe even step up and become the savior? Of everything. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think he's going to be a very complex character that's going to go through a lot of um, involvement in the first season of The Mandalorian. It's very exciting. Uh, of course, The Mandalorian might just as well be called 
the bounty hunter or mm -hmm. bounty hunters because that has a lot to do with this uh, series. So Giancarlo was also talking about what would the what's the Empire's relationship with the bounty hunters as a faction. The Empire is basically fallen. So their relationship with bounty hunters, I think, is is a little tenuous. I think they want to extinguish them because they create disorder and they create bounty means money. It means it's not coming to them and we want to tax that a little bit. So it'll be interesting to see what happens um, out of that, that um, relationship. Oh, now that's interesting. Yeah. So there you get a sense that they're still trying to maintain a sense of control, at least in terms of the way money passes through. Look, hey, if you bounty hunters are going to be out there doing business, we're going to wet our beaks a little bit. So, you know, almost like maybe the way the mob works yeah, in a sense. Right. My speculation is that with the fall of the empire, bounties will be placed on imperial officials. Ooh, that's cool. I love that. Yes. And they will not have the protection of the empire anymore to cover their butts. Mm. And this is how the Republic gets established is by this era of lawlessness where bounty hunters can be incorporated by, by anyone essentially, yeah. you know? Right. And so it depends on which way you swing. Do you swing toward the empire or do you swing, swing toward the new Republic? And if that's the case, I think, it just opens up the market for bounty hunters. And so this would obviously cause a big problem with the Imperial Remnant and guys like Moff Gideon, who are probably dealing with the reality of having a mark on him, having a price on his head, you know, that maybe oh. maybe the Mandalorian is looking to cash in on. So that's why well, that's I, that's yeah. a cool idea. I that's love that I idea. That's what I think could be happening. It's kind of like when uh, the man with the golden gun puts the hit on James Bond. James Bond has to go and get him right before Bond can get him. So, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, very cool stuff. OK, let's do this. Uh, what we're going to do here. Speaking of the Mandalorian, we didn't really have a chance to go through the trailer. What we're going to do here is uh, kind of go shot by shot and do a little review and uh here we go and of course we see the eerie sight of these stormtrooper helmets in the sand some of them on pikes look at that mm. i'm going to pause it here because i just want to point out that you know this to me and i'm thinking about <laughs> jimmy max much maligned planet of the apes film series we know how he feels about planet of the apes oh wait a second i never said anything bad about oh the you said it was apes just show. awful you said it was just terrible yeah, but i don't recall that being part of an episode of rebel force Radio. oh am i, I outing was... you i thought i a you little know, bit sometimes a little bit. the uh you're you're afraid of paul bateman coming after you. I, I i just <laughs> think that any planet of the apes without charlton heston suck okay there. all right that's what he said now, now y'all know all right well you know that second one wasn't so hot and that had charlton heston in it damn you <laughs> all right but what i'm thinking of is these are almost like uh you know when they when they had this the the human scarecrows or the ape scarecrows in planet of the apes i mean this is like a big symbol don't go here imperials not welcome here you're a yeah. former imperial you're gonna get a pike through your head yeah shades of apocalypse now also when they approach kurtz's uh camp his outpost 
where they their heads on spikes. Um, I believe The Walking Dead did it at the end of season a couple seasons ago. They had a bunch of heads on spikes, and also just seeing the the stormtrooper helmets on display like this remind me of the front cover of the old expanded universe book Death Troopers, yes, which were about zombie stormtroopers, not the tall black armored troopers we get introduced to in rogue one these death troopers were zombie troopers and so i i instantly think of that book and that cover when i see these stormtrooper helmets on spikes yeah so the the empire clearly has no authority here all right right and let's keep moving got the lucasfilm logo shiny Yes. Ah, there is the Razor Crest. And uh, this was something uh, we alluded to earlier. This is uh, a part of the story that's very near and dear to uh, John Favreau's heart. This ship, uh, there were uh, multiple models made and some old school um, effect shots that were used for uh, the Razor Crest. I don't know in this particular shot, but uh, the Razor Crest... uh, in action is uh, sort of the the best of old and new technology. They took it very seriously to give it that quintessential Star Wars starship look, and we see it uh, coming over the some looks like Takadona a little bit. It does, or, you know, that's what I'm seeing is is more of a Takadona feel toward this planet. It certainly doesn't feel like that Tatooine esque planet we've seen in a lot of the footage for the Mandalorians. So. Good to see he's going to different places, different environments, different planets, get off planet. That's one thing I was afraid of with an episodic series like this is that each and every week we would be seeing the same environments, the same sets, the same locales. This expands the scope seeing an environment like this that tells me that the action will happen off planet. So fingers crossed. I think that's a real important element for all Star Wars stories to have. Um, You know, Star Wars Resistance, the animated series this year, I think suffered from claustrophobia by having every episode take place on the Colossus platform in the middle of the ocean. It made Star Wars very small. I like to see it being spread out, the adventure taking place over several different locales, different planets, different star systems different spaceships i want to see battles in space dogfights all that stuff well something here uh, it'll be interesting to see if the razor crest sort of joins the ranks of uh you know the millennium falcon uh luke's x-wing uh the ghost in rebels and kind of almost becomes a character in its own right all right what's this all right so oh look that looks like um kind of like the ship to the right of the frame looks has some aesthetic that reminds me of a snow speeder yes the cockpit window the mm-hmm. way the front sort of comes into that v formation there we're just not seeing enough of the ship right i also am thinking e-wing a little bit from rogue one but um hard to tell then the ship to the Left obviously is the Mandalorian ship, the Razor Crest. The Razor Crest, yeah, is that what it's called? Razor, yeah, the Crest? Razor Crest, yeah. It's not called Razor Quest. No, not not Quest. Not no, Quest. No, it's no. Crest, not Quest. Crest, yeah. Razor Crest. Yeah. Quest. All right, yeah. we got uh, the Mandalorian going through uh, some sort of uh, little, 
little gateway here. Big gateway. Nothing little about that thing. All right. And okay. we've got some... Uh, Looks like maybe people are throwing down their weapons here. Uh, no, credits. Yeah. I, no, there was credits an asthma the device there. Yeah. I think there was a vape pen there. This is like <laughs> me going into a concert. Yeah, that's exactly right what it before looks I like. go into the metal detectors. It's right. Like, what are you going to put all that stuff there? Oh, these are just my credits. Yeah. Oh, well, sure we, they are. Well, we know they were picking up the chits. Uh, Carl Weathers. Now, Carl Weathers. I believe is playing. Oh, look at that environment with the craggly crags. And yeah, everything. A lot of stuff is happening here, real fast. Oh now. yeah. All right. But uh, Carl up. Weathers, uh, what do we know of him? He's the leader of the Bounty Hunter Guild, right? Yes. And that's something that comes from the expanded universe. Quite honestly, the 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 whole concept of the Bounty Hunters Guild. But so his character is Grief Karga. That's who Carl Weathers plays, Grief Karga. And um, according to some uh, character breakdowns that appeared recently on entertainmentweekly.com or EW.com, his character, Grief Karga, asks the Mandalorian to take on an assignment that nobody else wants. And you know what I think that assignment is? I think he places the bounty on Moff Gideon, played by Giancarlo Esposito. <laughs> that's what oh, I think. Okay. That's my speculation. Wow. That's, I'm just guessing. Uh-huh. But that's what I think it is. I think there's uh, heavy stakes involved here, and I think Moff Gideon is going to have a mark on his head, and uh, there's going to be a bounty placed on him by Carl Weathers. Grief Karga. I hope we get to see Carl in some action sequences and not like just sitting behind a desk, you know, giving out jobs. Um, <laughs> I, I, I would love to see him, you know. I, why would you hire a guy or, like uh, Carl Weathers and not give him an opportunity to go out and kick some ass? I think I think we're going to see Carl kicking some butt. He looks like he's still in amazing shape. Yeah, I mean, no doubt. I mean, no doubt about it. I mean, now, has the ghost? I know you've seen all of the uh, the Creed movies. Has the ghost of Apollo Creed ever appeared to his uh, his son <laughs> in any of those movies? The blue ghost? Yeah, no uh, blue ghost. No, no, no it right, hasn't. Man. It hasn't. He might show up in the next Rambo movie, though. But I mean, I, no. Um, <laughs> Carl Weathers has nothing to do with that. If they're still making Predator movies, maybe he'll show ah, up. I'd no. love to see that, it's Dylan. You son of a... All right. You know, the only reason I bring up Rambo is because Stallone has a new Rambo movie coming out. And, of course, he and Carl Weathers are contemporaries. They went toe-to-toe against each other in those early Rocky movies that were so great. And now Sly Stallone is out there still making the action-adventure film and still kicking ass along the way. And he's in his 70s. So I just wanted to say hats off to Sylvester Stallone because I don't think we say it often enough here on Rebel Force Radio because obviously he's had nothing to do with Star Wars. That's right. Yet. 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 (laughs) But seeing Carl Weathers makes me think of him. And, Jason, when you said, well, he certainly looks like he's in great shape, I think he is. I think he can do, you know, a new Rocky movie, you know. Yeah. Have him come back as a blue ghost who fights Rocky. I would love to see that. It'd be a great way to tie it into Star Wars and um, have Uh, Grief Karga, you know, Apollo Creed reveals 
that he's actually been Grief Karga all along, and Apollo Creed was just a an alias. He was hiding in plain sight from the Empire. Well, I mean, being the leader of the Bounty Hunter Guild, I mean, you got to kind of keep it underground. Mm-hmm. But nobody yeah. realizes that, you know, he's sitting there at that desk, but waist down, he's wearing red, white, and blue striped <laughs> boxing shorts. James Brown is around, ready to burst out in song. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. <laughs> Living on Tatooine. <laughs> All right, so we're frozen on Gina Carano, who is Cara Dune. Yes. Now, she is a former shock trooper turned uh, mercenary. Okay. All right, so the shock troopers, they were uh, specialized stormtroopers. Right, and if they're sticking with that narrative. Yes, the shock troopers were revealed to be the stormtroopers with red detail. The clone troopers, I should say, mm-hmm. with, with the red detail that were with Emperor Palpatine at the end of Revenge of the Sith. Mm-hmm. They were with him when he landed on Mustafar to tend to the husk of Anakin Skywalker. They appeared in the Senate Rotunda after Yoda fell. They were sweeping the place looking for him. So those were revealed to be clone shock troopers. Yeah. Or imperial. I guess uh, they would be imperial shock troopers. That's right. Clones per se. So, I mean, are we going to realize that she was actually one of those stormtroopers working directly with Palpatine? Possibly. It also says uh, some other details that she also fought with the rebellion during the Galactic Civil War. So she turned mercenary and teamed up with the rebellion uh, prior to their victory against the Galactic Empire. So I guess with her age, that all kind of times out. Yeah. The shock troopers didn't really rise into prominence until Palpatine declared himself emperor. So that would be 20 years prior to A New Hope. This mm-hmm. happens roughly seven years after A New Hope. Yeah. So if she's a 20-something shock trooper, this would put her at around age 57. No, it doesn't time out because Gina Carrasco or Gina Carano is way older than or younger than 50-something. So. Well, I mean, it doesn't mean that she couldn't have been a shock trooper. And I mean, maybe she the didn't shock have to be a shock trooper from day one. Maybe they continue to exist even into the era of Star Wars represented in the original trilogy. I'm sure I mean, maybe there were still Imperial shock troopers around. We just didn't see them. Right. By the time we caught up with the Emperor, he was hanging with the, his royal guards. Right. Who turned out to be really uh, not much of anything. Kind of. Well, I mean, let's see you fight with a big red throw rug wrapping you up or something. I mean, it's like Yoda took care of him. Blanket. Like, like three seconds. I mean, he walked in, just like looked at him. They fell over. Well, yeah. They have no connection to the force. Yeah. Well, they have those so, force pikes though. I think I'm just going to say right now, I do not think they're talking about the same shock troopers we saw in revenge of the Sith when they're describing her hmm. shock trooper turned mercenary. I don't think so. I, no. I think that's, I've seen shock trooper used before in Star Wars, even to describe the armor Boba Fett was wearing. 
In the original novelization, it referred to him as a shock trooper. Mm-hmm. I think. I think. Well, the Empire novelization. All right, let's move on. All right. So we, here's Gina, right? Cara Dune. Oh, now we got a beast of burden here. And this looks to be the Ugnot. This could be the Nolte character that we're seeing. Uh, yes, I believe it is. Yeah. Right. And I don't know. They, we don't have a name for that uh, sort of. Uh, that creature there. Somebody told me it was a blurg. A blurg. Oh, that's right. All right. So there is the blurg. All right. Ooh, in a in a in a Twi'lek looking yeah. looking fine there with the little purple shades. Love that. There's a classic. Well, it's a classic. You know that does not go out of style. Where are they in uh, the sequel trilogy? Thank you. Little wink. Here's the Mandalorian. Very uh, uh, Tatooine like. Yep. Very looking. Tatooine. Yep. Uh, now here, who who do we have here? We've got a, a clearly like a. A mother and daughter cowering, they're hiding. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm wondering if this could be the first scene that really establishes the Mandalorian for us. You know, we know that it's a grassy and swampy water planet that we saw the Razor Crest fly over. Are we mm-hmm. going to be introduced to this character as this guy is merciless? He's going to take down his bounty right in front of the wife and the child if he mm. has to. Oh, that could be. Or this could be a flashback showing um, um, Cara Dune's mm. origin. Yeah, you know, possibly. maybe she's the child in this shot, mm-hmm. and that's her mother. I, it's it's hard to tell. Um, obviously, we'll be seeing families getting shattered as a result of the events that lead up to or the events that happen in The Mandalorian. There's going to be something that shows, much like with Rogue One. You know, showing a, a family get. Oh, yeah. This very shattered. much reminds me of uh, the beginning of Rogue One. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The family in hiding. All right. So moving on from there. OK. Death Troopers. Nice. Nice. Death Looking good here. Oh, yeah. Looks like a firing squad here. Yeah. Execution style. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're lined up. You know, they, there's probably somebody standing there with a smoke. And uh, right there, you can kind of see someone standing there. Yeah, but this is the Mandalorian. I think this is—he's got an itchy trigger finger here. Oh, he's there. Yeah. Okay, I think so that's I the Mandalorian. I'm not sure who yeah. this is in the in the uh, background foreground. We've got the Mandalorian hand on the blaster. Um, could be Giancarlo. I don't know. It could be. Uh, no, I no. don't think that he's going to be that easy to extract and line up in front of a firing squad. Plus, I don't think Giancarlo's character, Moff Gideon, is going to be facing execution by a bunch know. of I, death no, I don't, troopers. But I don't think that's it. Okay, so here you got the shot. So they're not he, lined up to shoot him. No. They're under his command. This is two different shots. This is two different shots. You've got You've got the death troopers right here. Yeah. And then you've got a shot. This is going to go into a shot of the Mandalorian standing across from his his bounty, I think. I No, I don't think that this is. Uh, Maybe. That looks like a guy like tied to a post or something. Yeah, it's, um, it's blurry. I don't think we're possibly going to, to know. It's very hard to tell. But I think this is the bounty hunter standing across from one of his bounties. Uh, then we get a close-up shot here of Giancarlo. Gus Fring from yeah. Breaking Bad. He was uh, great in that. Hmm. I think we're going to see a very different character. 
I don't think this guy's going to be selling crystal meth out of the back of a fast food chicken. Hey, desperate place. times for the empire. You never know. Well, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, they we've, heard about the, we've heard about Palpatine's contingency plan. Little did you know that involved <laughs> <laughs> running smack. All right. So here's Giancarlo. Uh, Mandalorian. I mean, the cinematography is just so great. You know, you looks good. The, the, the sunset, uh, sunrise, uh, very, mm, very western. western. Oh yeah, for sure. Western. And there's that um, that rifle. We can see that the uh, the butt of the rifle there that uh, was made famous by Boba Fett in the holiday special animated short. November twelfth. All right, what do we got here? This is. Somebody was looking up at a, kind a, of a flash speeder. of light that could have been uh, maybe an Imperial probe droid landing. Just prior to that, you'll see it's, it's so brief. It lasts answer a matter of seconds. Answer answer. Yeah, yeah, you so know, that could be an Imperial probe droid. It has that same kind down. of, you see that smoky trail that it's leaving? That kind of reminds me of that. That's a good, that's a good thought. So, uh, and uh, apparently we, it looks like that's the same character that saw that, 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 that ball of light coming down and he's riding an old school Macquarie inspired skiff. Oh, that we've that. seen lots of times. Yeah, but that's great. Yeah. Looks good. Looks good. Love he's just got goggles and, uh, and, uh, a bandana covering his nose and mouth. He's Antifa there. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> I knew it. Uh, I knew it. All right. Oh, wait a minute. We saw feet of this Walker. Oh, here. feet, feet. Oh, All right. yeah, Walker Feet. Yeah, Walker Feet. Um, mm. And there they are. Let's see. Now, this is showing a lot of uh, of carnage and terror, you might say. So this, yeah. whatever this village is or this town, they're at the mercy of um, what very well could be um, Moff. Uh, what's it? What's it? What's it? He's Moff Gideon. What? Moff Gideon. That's right. Moff yeah. Gideon. Um, people running for their lives. Reminds me a little bit of the terror that you see at the beginning of The Force Awakens. Old school Scout Walker. Yep. You and know then what? that environment even looked a little like Naboo to me in a way, but ah. it's that same that same yeah. desert town. But those maroon dressings, uh, that, that does kind of give you that Naboo vibe. Mm. Uh, this is great. The people are calling this the bread shot. Have you heard about this? Because it looks like a loaf of bread. Wow, man. You guys are freeze framing a lot, man. If you're coming up with a bread shot, that's good. That's good stuff. (laughs) That is good stuff right there. Then so you have the IG and the Mando. IG 11, right? The slice of Wonder Bread. (laughs) IG 11. There's a trading card stuffed in there somewhere. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the Mandalorian and IG-11 stepping through. I mean, that's that you're talking about Western. And here we go. These are some of these space shots that uh, very well could have uh, been using the stop motion effects, uh, old school style. Yeah. Um, ooh, wait a minute. Oh, we got, he's got the big, the yeah. big gun right there. Yeah, the Mando. Hold on. Let me guess who I can get to that. Oh, there. Look at this. Mandalorian using this uh, cannon. This, you know, kind of like what we saw in Hoth. Mm-hmm. Is that the same armor he's? seen wearing in all the other shots i guess it is it just it's kind of different so. the way he's sort of squeezing together his yeah the lighting and, and all of that I, you know i want that's a good point i wonder if we'll see any kind of evolution in the armor if he's having to replace or put pieces yes know, the action together. figure guys would love that wouldn't they 
Oh, I mean, think Hasbro about, remember the old wait. Batman action figures where he'd always have like night vision Batman yeah. or, you uh, know, yeah. swamp action Batman. There'd always be some sort of different Batman. But it never showed up in the series, you know, in the movies or the cartoon. Is They were terrible. fun to collect. Yeah. Moved a lot of merch. That's right. All right. So there he is. Uh, who's he? Who's he firing at there? Uh, let's see. Who's he? Whoa. Oh, look at that. No, Whoa. that was not a lightsaber. I know what you were thinking. I saw that, too. But that was just a blaster bolt. Okay. Blaster right there. Bolt. Did that look like he was igniting it a lightsaber? It did. It did. I it's thought like we that. found something here, but uh, no. Chirrut Imway shows up with a red <laughs> lightsaber. It blows everyone's minds. Chirrut! All right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, so I don't know what these are. Strong. Okay. I won with the false. All right. So who knows who he's firing at? I don't know if these are Imperials or who these guys are. Um, but I do IG- know one thing. IG-11 is kicking some bootay right here. I tell you what, now, after seeing this, I never, I don't look at my Black Series IG-88 the same way. I always thought that was, what a lame looking character this is. Then you see him in action. It's like, look at that. Why the necessity to make this character anything but IG-88? Why IG-11? What's the necessity in that? You're not disrupting any sort of continuity with the character. I don't know. I'm sure there's some source book or some West End game mm. something or God knows what that uh, okay. yeah. ruined the so character the, forever. The whistle got blown on him because <laughs> he was destroyed in some sort of book that they've already declared is non-canon anyway. So well, but I mean, cares? I mean, I never looked at an IG droid. I mean, even IG-88, I'm like, all right, you know, so they used uh, pieces from the uh, cantina, you know, uh, to, to, to make his head, whatever. I never th- saw them as fearsome, but this just is totally fantastic. I'm just yeah. thrilled by that. And here's some old school OT stormtroopers. Um, now we saw a scene that involves the Mandalorian and uh, uh, Herzog's character. Oh, Werner Herzog! Werner <laughs> Herzog! Yes. Everybody loves Werner Herzog, and they cannot tell you why. <laughs> Everybody's excited about him. I, you know, he seems like a wonderful uh, actor, but uh, I could. Hey, you've him. never seen me break dance. I do the popping and the grooving. Anyway, we saw this scene, and um, uh, I think this is another part of that same scene where the Mandalorian is uh, breaking free of uh, all these stormtroopers. Yeah, no, that is the same scene we saw at Star Wars Celebration. Yeah. Right. When they all surround him. Yeah. Look at these poor bastards. Look at them with their, they're all <laughs> dirty, and they got blood stains and... But I mean, yet they Ewoks come across as on being more capable and fearsome than we've seen stormtroopers, well, in my opinion, true. just from the brief glimpses we've gotten of them. Well, we don't know who's in those suits. I mean, these these guys may not be the uh, benefits of nepotism that was, you know, no, you're right. said you're to right. be the uh, Imperial uh, stormtroopers. All right. Dramatic pause. Is it complicated? And then it's a squid face. Oh, is she Tib? Yeah, squid face. I love that. Squid face. Oh, you saw this dude too? That dude, are you a big fan of him? 
He looks like somebody I saw at the Sitco gas station this morning. <laughs> right, yeah, he was just trying to knock over the 7-Eleven. No, not Ishii, Tim. I, the, the squid oh, face. Squid yeah, face. Yeah, yeah. Squid face is back. Yeah, love that. Now, are you yes. going to be upset if that's not the real squid face? Oh, Tessic? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, I, you know, I, right. uh, I, I find that there's room for more squid faces right. <laughs> anywhere and every. Actually, I think he's known as Squid Head. Squid Not, I call him Squid Face. I should call him Squid Head. Squid Head. Yeah, yeah. The, re- the the reason I remember this is because at one point I was uh, I was doing a Star Wars music show and I was considering naming it Squid Head Bangers Ball, but uh, <laughs> it didn't go far. No, it didn't. That's uh, a shame. It didn't go past the pitch. All right. Oh, Ooh, damn. So we're doing a little Slam flip over. To- now we're in some sort of cantina here. Um, oh yes, yes we nope. are. Looks like maybe he's catching uh, his. Pre- this is very Batman, um, with the uh, with the cable. Uh, well, or Django Fett. I guess we'll keep it Star Wars. Django Fett mm-hmm. using the uh, grappling hook. Um. Oh, okay. So he's after the squid head. Okay, that's the squid head. He just roped in there. Squid head. Yeah. He's got him, and yep. then he pulls him in just a little bit, and he fires his blaster at that door control. So when you yep. hit play, oops. Yep, there it goes. <laughs> Door goes shut. And he's half the squid face he used to be. <laughs> All right. Oh, now, here Manny we go. Manny Carbonite. Yeah. There's been rumors about this guy's identity. Some people are claiming it's Moralo Ival. Um, I don't, I not heard any real confirmation about that yet. I think somebody said it was possible that Dave Filoni mentioned this at D23. I didn't hear him mention anything like that. But uh, I saw a tweet today from somebody who claims to know that this is um, an Easter egg for fans of the Clone Wars, that this is Moralo Eval, the season four character that was voiced by Steven Stanton. You remember Moralo Eval. (laughs) Yes. Um, He used to to read bedtime stories to us here on Rebel Force Radio. But recently there have been photos revealing a shot of the Mandalorian dueling with two Trandoshans. And I don't know. Maybe these. This is one of the Trandoshans, frozen in carbonite. I'd hate to jump uh, to the conclusion I that don't it's think morale. So. That's, that's not a. That's not a Trandoshan. Look at that. Are you face. sure? There's I mean, no it's hard snout. to tell with the way it's kind of yeah, cocked that... back like that. And what's with the members only jacket that he's wearing? <laughs> well, you, you know, know what I I remember. So this was the actually the original pose. That Han Solo was to be in with those shackles in his hands down, but yes, Kirsch didn't think that it looked. Um, he didn't look anguished enough, so they went with that uh, hands up, like he was trying to tear away and break free of the carbonite as it was being encasing him. So, uh, I th- as a matter of fact, the micro collection Han Solo from uh, Kenner back in uh, nineteen eighty. It had the carbonite slab Han Solo in that in that oh, position. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, because the figure you couldn't pose the figure in there, and they wanted the figure to fit inside the slab. Not in the micro collection. It was two. Different oh, micro things. collection. Yeah, I micro thought you were collection. talking about the old. Uh, oh, the power of three and three quarter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, I'm not sold on this being Moralo Eval. 
if it is, I'd be surprised that, you know, I mean, it's like the last characters I would think to advance forward into the new era of Star Wars. Number one being Hondo Onaka being the only character they bring forward into the Star Wars land at Disney that Galaxy's Edge. And then the who else should we bring forward into uh, the Mandalorian? We have this roster, a stable filled with all kind of incredible characters we could bring forward. Who are we going to bring? Moralu Ival. <laughs> oh my God, I have all the characters. So This could be a very throwaway moment, though, Jim. This it could, could be. be and it's, you know, Filoni-verse. Yeah. Filoni-verse, right. of course, we know. Uh, Moralu Ival did emerge in the Clone Wars. And so if they were to include him in the Mandalorian in some way, shape, or form, I'd be like, oh, okay, that seems natural enough. But... Again, you have this amazing roster of characters going back to 1977, and some of these characters are being tapped on the shoulder to move in advance into the new era of Star Wars is puzzling to me, to say the least. Right, right. Moralu Ival doesn't exactly uh, – I don't even think they even made an action figure of him back in the day, so I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I – it's – the thing that I didn't notice at first, uh, but I noticed after subsequent viewings, is this is a whole lineup of uh, of carbonite slabs here. Oh, so yeah. You can see yeah. that. Uh, and I, I don't know if this is the Mandalorian's preferred way of capturing his bounties or if this is oh, another bounty is. hunter. Yeah. But uh, we'll see. Yeah. I mean, squid heads back there and uh, <laughs> that little others. girl and her mom. Others from the Filoni-verse, like Captain Rex is frozen back there somewhere. I'm sure Ahsoka is in line. I'm sure. Now, we did see this in the Clone Wars. We did see uh, the Jedi going undercover and freezing themselves in carbonite so they could sneak on board. Right. Yeah. Um, Now, of course, it was a practice that wasn't exactly used commonly, especially when it came to living people. Vader had the confidence to know that in his past it had been pulled off before by himself in his former life as Anakin That's right. Skywalker. Yeah. But then by the time, you know, it comes to freezing Han Solo, of course, Lando objects, saying that it could kill him. Vader seems pretty confident, but still not confident enough to freeze Luke in the carbon freezing chamber because obviously the technology had advanced since he had frozen himself. And uh, he wanted to make sure that particular facility, while it was crude, it would prove to be adequate to freeze Luke. So that's the other thing, too. I think Vader was nervous that uh, the uh, Cloud City facilities were beneath his standards to begin with. So obviously he had to test it out on Han. And then by the time we get to the Mandalorian, word had spread around that Boba Fett had frozen Han Solo and he was hanging up as a wall decoration in Jabba's palace. Well, that gets people talking, you know. Yeah, word got around. Word Word gets around. around. So other bounty hunters were like, hey, that's not a bad idea. Carbonite. Carbonite. By the time we get to the Mandalorian era in the Star Wars timeline, freezing your bounty in carbonite is... uh, Rather standard practice, I would say, thanks All to right. the, you know, the pioneering efforts of Boba Fett and Darth Vader. All right, so there we go, Carbonite. There, oh, there's the great, oh, the great thespian, Werner Herzog. Look at me. 
I am here. Everyone on Twitter seems to love me for some reason, and I do not know why. And they do not know why either. <laughs> All right. Dramatic moment. The Mandalorian. So badass with that silver helmet. Oh, so so cool. And I love this little effect of the uh, of the Mandalorian cape. You notice that? How's it? It's yeah, revealing it's like the, the logo yeah. as the wipe. Let's talk about the logo for a second. I believe that when we were introduced to the Mandalorian at Star Wars Celebration Chicago, the Star Wars was not visible on top of the logo. It was just the Mandalorian. You are correct. You I are think correct. Star Wars is a new addition. They played around with different ways of notarizing these spin-off shows and films as being part of the Star Wars universe. At first with Rogue One it was going to be called a Star Wars anthology, right? But then they changed it to a Star Wars story. And now they've gone back to what I think is the most rational way to do it is just call it Star Wars the Mandalorian, right? Right. Sorry, I hit my microphone yeah. there. Star Wars The Mandalorian. And, I mean, that really says it all right there. And that's how you want to merchandise to this thing. That's how you want to promote it. You want to have that familiar Star Wars logo on top of it. And then it says The Mandalorian. I was weirded out when the first Batman movie was released. And it had no mention of Batman in the title. That would have been The Dark Knight. Mm. Yeah, that, that's right. It was the Dark Knight. I'm like, well, they're not going. They're not going to call Batman the Dark Knight. They're just going to call it the Dark Knight. That seems foolish to me. But the no, you know, the notoriety of Batman actually carried his character above and beyond that kind of marketing, and everyone knew they were going to see the Batman movie. Right. It was so effective that people actually started to refer to the franchise as the Dark Knight. It that really worked out well for them. Yeah. I think with Star Wars, the smartest way to go about it is just put Star Wars in front of anything you release. Star Wars colon The Mandalorian. Right. And the way that they've created the branding with Star Wars and then whatever the title is in between the Star and the Wars. Yeah. With the films, that's getting I old. That's, I think that's the way they're going to be. That's be getting fun. old. It lacks creativity. Um, I preferred... Personally, the way they did it in the original trilogy, where each film got its own logo, but it still incorporated Star Wars into that logo. Right. With the prequels, that was getting lazy, with the episode Roman numeral taking center stage. Yeah. But as we know, the Disney company doesn't like those Roman numerals. That's right. So they're not going to incorporate them. Right. But what they did incorporate was a lot of nostalgia in... The Force Awakens, so they basically took the same logo for the original Star Wars and just squeezed the new title in between the words Star and Wars and made that role for the last three films. I, I'd like to see, I'd like the Mandalorian logo. I think that's a good logo. Star Wars, Star Wars Cantina. Where are you going, Master? For a drink. Sorry about the mess. You'll never find. The more wretched hive of scum and villainy. We must be cautious. All right, we told you that we would uh, have this gentleman on at the top of the show, and here he is, the author of the Star Wars Historical Sourcebook, 
W.R. Miller. W.R. Miller, as we call him here, Bob. Welcome to Rebel Force Radio and in the cantina. We hope you're thirsty. Well, absolutely. And you guys give uh, some, serve some good blue milk. I love it. <laughs> Ours is you always know, the blue spiked, milk- though. Ours is always spiked. Well, that's the magic. Yeah, that is the magic. That's the magic <laughs> ingredient. That's for sure. Hey, Bob, thanks for joining us. Um, really excited about your book, The Star Wars Historical Source Book. And uh, if, if you could just give us um, you know, the elevator pitch for the book. Well, basically, um, I've been a Star Wars fan even before the film came out because there's a lot of coverage in the fan press uh, prior to, I mean, yeah, prior to the release. And while people collected um, action figures and models and toys, I collected information. And uh, there's a lot that uh, I decided I'd catalog it. I would catalog everything that uh, I would get my hands on, the books, the comic books, the newspaper articles. I wanted to find out why was Star Wars such a great movie? What was the magic behind it? What were the people like? You know, their philosophies. And what did they have to go through to make this wonderful film? So I started uh, collecting all this information, the newspaper articles and comics and et cetera. And this was in the pre-internet days, of course. But then the internet came along and I started getting uh, downloads from um, digitized newspapers. Newspapers now are all digitized, and you can get pretty much the complete run of them, you know, online. And I'm cataloging this into these books. And so that's taken you all over the country in search of all kind of incredible items, because the way the book is presented is in chronological order. So it begins in 1971. Right. Uh, What is the earliest reference to Star Wars that you ever found in printed media? What was the first place the two words, Star Wars, were printed together? Well, interestingly enough, it was in the Modesto B. And I think it was in 1972, and it was mentioned by George Lucas's father. Ah. And this was before American Graffiti came out. So that was the earliest public reference that I could find. Yeah, it was before American Graffiti. It was before non-disclosure agreements that yes. even you have your own dad sign. So <laughs> So the dad put it out there. That, and that's interesting because a lot of things we've heard about George Lucas, um, his um, failure, not, I shouldn't say failure, but his decision not to take the baton and run the family business like his dad insisted upon or was grooming him for was always something that I thought kind of put a wedge between George and his father. Yes. So I find it interesting to note that he's talking about George's career with enthusiasm to the Modesto local media uh, in a way that, you know, I thought, you know, maybe he and his dad sort of had a falling out because of that. Were they ever estranged from each other as a result of George wanting to go off and make films instead of running the family hardware store? Well, I'm sure there is some friction involved because as any loving parent would do they want the best for their their son their their children and so they probably thought that uh, George might have a better chance at making a living doing what they were familiar with you know being in motion pictures is a very iffy proposition you know it's 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 a crapshoot basically and George through sheer perseverance 
and drive. He discovered his love for films at uh, USC and got connected with some people. And he showed initiative, if you've seen his student films. And that caught the eye of Hollywood. That caught, you know, he, he um, found a mentor in Francis Coppola and took off from there. Well, I actually found the... Uh... I found the the segment here from the Modesto B, July fourteenth, nineteen seventy two. Yes. George Lucas Sr. discusses his son's budding film career and American Graffiti, which is currently filming in the area. Already in the works for his son, the senior Lucas reported is another science fiction film now known as Star Wars, which is scheduled for release by United Artists. And of course, United Artists—they uh, they never signed on to uh, release Star Wars, right? No, yes, that's correct. And, and in fact, I think it was uh, registered with the MPAA uh, with United Artists, but then that deal can't, you know, fell apart. But see, that's part of the value of the book is that I've documented this this kind of thing. Um, you know, everything is all sourced, and um, and on top of that, you know, George said some top things in the press that later he would contradict in, uh, in his films. For instance, he said later on, I believe it was in 1975, or maybe after that, that um, Luke and Leia had a two-age difference. Mm-hmm. They were not twins. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, but I've got it documented. Bob, are you <laughs> saying that George Lucas, throughout the history of the Star Wars saga, has been inconsistent? Is that what well, I'm hearing? <laughs> Twelve movies, nine movies, six movies, three movies? Well, that's the artist's prerogative, I guess. And what's great about your book, the Star Wars Historical Source Book, is that you have a running timeline of everything George Lucas said publicly. And I think this is the first time a collection like this has ever been attempted. Um, to this extent, yes. And it's also got uh, global coverage as well. Oh. You know, I, I've been to, and that's given me all kinds of adventures. I've been to the United Kingdom. I've been to England and uh, went to the British Film Institute, the main library at Cambridge, National Newspaper Library of Britain, and uh, several other places. I've been to Canada. I've had friends in Australia and New Zealand who have uh, given me materials and um, it's great, you know, to have oh, this information shared because because that that the interviews that I find overseas sometimes the actors will say things that are not that they don't reveal in the United States. Yeah, for sure, thinking it will yeah. never follow them back home. But little did they know, Bob Miller is cashing in on his frequent flyer miles, and he has library cards to everywhere. So, um, Bob, you went out to uh, England. Is that how you came into contact with Gary Kurtz, who wrote the foreword for the book? No, um, I have to credit Craig Miller, and you know who that is. Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, Craig Miller, of course, was a publicist for... Lucasfilm, um, leading up to Empire Strikes Back. Yes, and so he he was my contact person, and he contacted uh, Gary Kurtz on my behalf, mm-hmm. and uh, Kurtz agreed. And um, he was sick at the time, and it was kind of rough going for a while, but um, finally Gary agreed to an interview, and he gave me about uh, an, an interview that lasted a little over an hour, and so I've sprinkled his comments 
throughout uh, upcoming um, editions of the book, upcoming volumes. And uh, I think, I, yeah, I also quote him in this uh, first volume where we talk about, um, uh, what was it, uh, the uh, the wills. What are the wills? That's right. That's right. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, was, I was actually just reading that passage earlier today. And so I did take note that you had quotes directly from Gary Kurtz, which led me to wonder, did you interview anyone else specifically for the book? Well, uh, yeah, um, I did. And, I, and I've got some comments from uh, Harrison Ellenshaw, the background mat painter. Right. You know, I've got comments from him and several others. And then for volume two coming up, I've interviewed uh, Mark Pevers, who arranged the business deal for the merchandising. You know, he's, he was representing Fox. So um, I've got exclusive comments from him as well as Gary Kurtz and others. So Very nice, very nice. And you took some uh, quotes from a classic Rebel Force Radio interview with Charles Lippincott and added them I'm to the grateful. book as well. Yes, for which I'm grateful. Yes, we are too. I don't know if Charlie is, but we are. I can say that. And I got Charlie's uh, permission to quote from him from his uh, Facebook's postings, oh, which are valuable. God. There's a, a plethora of information there. No question about it. So uh, also you had help from Steve Sansweet at Rancho Obi-Wan. That's how you and I crossed paths, Bob. Was, yes. uh One morning at breakfast at Rancho Obi-Wan, <laughs> you pulled out a box of all this amazing stuff that you had collected, um, made Xerox copies of from you know local public libraries all the way to Skywalker Ranch itself. Yes. So uh, tell us about how it's been working in places like Rancho Obi-Wan and the main library at Skywalker Ranch to do your research for this book. Well, it, it was, I've relied on the generosity of Steve Sansweet and um, Joe Donaldson at uh, the Skywalker Ranch uh, archives. Uh, just wonderful people. And um, through them, I was able to acquire material, you know, Xeroxes, and uh, of stuff that you can't get at any other library. A lot of this is private collections, and they were these private collections for both Ranch Obi-Wan and uh, Skywalker Ranch. So I've got some very rare material uh, cataloged. And that includes foreign material, too, because at uh, Skywalker Archives, it's now called Lucas Research Library and Archive, um, they've got boxes of foreign press material, so I've got international coverage that, uh, you know, they had archived at uh, Skywalker. You know, for someone who is looking at this book and they're seeing, you know, it's a Star Wars source book and you're very out there right on the cover. You're saying 1971 through 1976. Uh, obviously, there's the making of the film that took the better part of, of 1976. But what is there really? What can you what can people expect to read? between or what's the main narrative between 1971 and 1976 well basically the narrative is how the film was made and what people went through to make it you know these are just behind the scenes anecdotes from everybody involved in the making of the film and as future volumes will show i'll be uh, quoting anecdotes from uh, from reviews i'll be re quoting reviews and uh, interviews with the uh, people who made the films. And uh, in terms of the one 
kind of big thing that surprised you, sp- specifically looking at this period from 1971 to 1976? You're a researcher. You're also a huge fan. But was there something that just jumped out at you and you said, wow, I had no idea that this happened this way? Well, <laughs> the thing that leaped out to me was a direct quote from George Lucas saying that uh, Luke and Leia had a two age, two year age difference. That was the that one. Surprised me. That was that was just one thing. He actually admitted that. Yeah. So, uh, but that's fine because you know, as an artist, if he wants to um, make them twins, you know, fine. That's his prerogative. Has there been anything that you've uncovered in some of these uh, early ideas that he had that when you go to the theater now and you see a, a film like uh, Episode Eight, uh, The Last Jedi, you go, oh. That seems to be like maybe I've heard this before, or echoes of it, or something that's crept in. No, not to my knowledge. Not not that I can say offhand, because basically Disney's steering the sequels off into their own direction. Mm-hmm. Now it might be that the Rise of Skywalker might double back and honor what Lucas has done before, and that seems like that's going to be the case. But you're not seeing, uh, based on your extensive research of the history of this, any any overt uh, connection between some of these early ideas he had and what we're seeing play out on the screen now at this point? Uh, not that I can think of offhand, uh, but that said, um, there was a line that Han Solo gives um, in the first film. He says, I made the Kessel Run in less than 12 parsecs. You know, there was a lot of, you know, and that was just, uh, the character, you know, throwing a line out, you know, but in the, these later films, the Han Solo movie and um, these others, uh, they made it actually literal. <laughs> it was meant to be just to throw away a line by Solo to these two hayseeds, you know, Luke and uh, Ben, he considered them hayseeds. And so he thought he'd, uh, you know, uh, throw them a line and, uh, but the, the the new movies are making it an actual literal thing. Can you put uh, George Lucas's career in terms of what critics and industry people were saying about him as he is embarking on this journey of creating this 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 film? He's coming off of American Graffiti. He was sort of a, a chosen one in a sense coming out of USC. There was buzz around him. He found these mentors, but. Uh, what what put George Lucas in context of where he was as a professional as you're reading about him going through all of these, um, you know, all these pains in a lot of cases to make this movie and bring this story to life? Well, pains is the key word because uh, most of the crew didn't think he knew what he was doing, especially the English crew. And there were a, a select few people um, that believed in his vision. Uh, everybody else thought, what's going on here? You'll see all kinds of accounts, especially from the English crew, that um, they weren't sure that this was worth doing. And in fact, when um, the Industrial Light and Magic people got footage from the English production, the Eng- when they got the film back of Darth Vader, and Darth Vader sounding like um, David Prowse, David Prowse has this accent, it sounds nothing like uh, he does now. 
And so the ILM people were going, what's this all about? He sounds like this is this is Darth Farmer. <laughs> oh, right. Right. His accent was more of a, a working class accent there in uh, or country accent. Like it would be somebody like in the States here, somebody with a real southern draw, perhaps. Yeah. But I never hear that. I always hear, you know, a very classy sounding British accent. I wouldn't know the difference. You know, it's like, oh, he's he's country British. Well, he's British to me. He sounds classy with that accent. So but I don't know. But he didn't sound men- menacing enough for George Lucas. No. And have you ever seen the uh, few outtake clips that ended up in circulation or on DVDs or what have you that actually feature Dave Prowse's voice from Behind the Mask? Yes. Have you ever seen any of that footage? Oh, yeah, it's on YouTube. Yeah, it's uh, it's uh, you have to agree. There's uh, definitely a more menacing factor that you have with James Earl Jones voicing the character. Hey, Bob, you, you bring up the fact that the British crew did not have the confidence in George Lucas, but also his American contemporaries, his peers, also lacked confidence in George Lucas. Uh, almost everyone to a, a person outside of Francis Ford Coppola and Steven Spielberg thought that Lucas was heading toward disaster when it came to Star Wars. Irvin Kershner, this is at the very end of the book, too. Uh, Irvin Kershner talks about a screening that happened at Francis Ford Coppola's New Year's party. Yeah. And uh, Kirsch was there, and they went downstairs, and they said, um, Kirsch says, we didn't want to face him. This is the most awful stuff we've ever seen. We all turned around and went out and, of course, said the usual things. George, you got a lot of work to do, yet uh, we were really, really concerned for George. And keep in mind, Kirshner was one of Lucas's teachers at USC. Yeah. Imagine yes. your teacher telling you that. Yes, he's got a lot. George, you have <laughs> a lot of work to do here. Get to work. But uh, no, they they lacked the confidence. And just about everyone did. All, all the end of, Because I think Star Wars was so revolutionary and so outside the box, it was ahead of its time when it was being made, yes. obviously. And that's why it had the impact it had when it was finally released, finished, completed, released. And, of course, John Williams has a lot to do with putting that final sheen of quality on the entire production. Absolutely. The music really makes the film. Now, we, we don't get into too much of the music here in the book as it's ramping up toward um, uh, 1977. This only takes us up to 76. So that's what I think is also really amazing about this book is it's so hyper-focused on the the actual creation of Star Wars. It, you don't even get to the successful stuff yet. By the time the book is over, Kirsch is saying, you've got a lot of work to do. <laughs> so... <laughs> I, I think it's really refreshing to to get through all the trials and tribulations as it played out in the public eye, um, because everything you take here is is from well, actually not. I mean, you do jump ahead in time too, and you you get interviews leading all the way up to uh, the current time. But uh, at least a lot of the stuff that I read in the newspaper, it, it still is. A, there's a question mark with Star Wars. It wasn't like it was being hyped as the big summer blockbuster. There was some some critics were looking forward to it, but for the most part, uh, there was skepticism by uh, the the British crew, Lucas's contemporaries and peers, and of course. 20th Century Fox itself. Yeah, that's right. Um, 
you're absolutely right about that. But, um, you know, Luke, Lucas had faith in himself, and he plunged ahead and pretty much surprised everybody when it finally came out. Yeah, now Volume 2 is going to cover a lot of that, uh, about the recordings of the music and some of the editing and um, some of the stuff in the Death Star. Now, I'm not, not Death Star, the um, filming at uh, Death Valley, because that changed a lot of stuff, too. And one of the surprises that I got um, was that Death's, the um, Death Valley location wasn't the only one used to film the exterior shots for the Landspeeder. They also also shot out in uh, near San Bernardino. Oh no, kidding! Which happens to be the location of um, Kevin Rubio's troops. Oh, <laughs> so he actually did go back to a, a legitimate filming location to make that that parody That's film. That's why it felt so authentic. Yeah, yeah it really did. <laughs> so, Jason, uh, before we let Bob go. Bob, thank you again so much for joining us to talk about the Star Wars Historical Sourcebook, Volume 1. It's, it's a, a, just a great book. Um, you, you pick it up and uh, start thumbing through it, and the next thing you know, you've lost an hour. It's uh, really one of those uh, books that sucks you in because it puts you right there in the course of history being made. It's fantastic. But, Jason, before we let Bob go, I... I I was hoping we can ask him a, a few uh, questions from the old Yoda questionnaire. Oh, sure. <laughs> I just happen yeah. to have it right here. No, oh, well, that's how convenient. So, Bob, we have this collection of questions that was compiled by uh, Jedi Master Yoda himself. Uh, very basic, easy-to-answer questions. But uh, sure, the questions themselves are easy. But by the end, we are going to uh, know the sum of all the parts that make Bob Miller a Star Wars fan. So I hope you're ready for this. All right. It's kind of a midi. It's a midi chlorian test, if you will. Uh, All verbal, though. All right. And Bob, I will tell you, there are wrong answers. There are wrong answers. Okay, we like that too. I'm I'm, I'm kidding. There are no wrong answers. (laughs) All right. So, Bob, what or who is your favorite Star Wars character? Wow. (laughs) I like them all. No, like, no. Have to commit. There are wrong answers. I take it back. There are. Come on. Come on. You have to commit. You have to have a favorite. Well. So Who's your favorite what? Star Wars character today? Today? Yeah. Well, if I have to choose right off the top of my head, I would say Han Solo. Why? Off the top of the... Well, because he's cool. He's the hero's hero. Um... I don't like it when they Disney decided to, you know, kill him off. I'm I'm sorry they felt that that was necessary. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's documented that Harrison Ford did want his character to be bumped off like that. But um, but George has said uh, the reason why he wanted Solo alive, and uh, part of that is for the, the overall narrative of the story that George had in mind. It was a necessary mm. perspective. It was a necessary yes. element, for yeah. sure. But, but I mean, but you know, what's Han Solo without Chewbacca? Chewbacca is Han Solo's conscience. Hmm. You know, everything is so connected between the characters. That's why I say I love them all. You know how? You know why is Luke as good as he is without? Um, you know the interaction between him and and Darth Vader. Your hero is as only as good as your villain, right? Right. Right. So um, Luke has to rise to the occasion to face uh, the challenges that he does. 
So, and of course, Leia, of course, represents uh, a fierce independence in, in spite of all the odds against her, you know. Wow, Bob, that might be the best and most thorough answer we've ever had to a yeah. The first that was a, that was a good one. That was a good one. <laughs> Thank that you. was real good. Oh man, um, what is your favorite Star Wars line? You're a man of words. What is the one line in wow. Star Wars that um, you never tire of hearing? Maybe you even use it in your own day to day life. Well, probably right off the top of my head. Um, no try, do. There is no try. Aha. Jedi Master Yoda wisdom. Yes. Do or do not. There is no try. We will accept That's that. It. Judges? Yes. Yeah, it's accepted. Yes. Judges <laughs> say it's accepted. All right. Is there a line in the Star Wars films or anywhere that you've come across that just makes you cringe? What is your least favorite Star Wars line? Um... um I thought I well, I'll tell you the one that cracks me up is I thought I recognized your foul stench when I you when I was brought on board. Oh, you don't That's like that one. line? No, no. no. Um, he likes it. I, I, oh, you it, do like it. Oh, this is an... line. It's, it's like Carrie Fisher speaking it through clenched teeth, and it, it's a dumb line, uh-huh. and it's hokey, but it works. She sells it, doesn't she? She sells it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah she does. Yes. All right, we got one more for you. Okay, so you have to right. uh, use some imagination here. All right. If another Star Wars movie were to be made and George Lucas came back to direct it and he said, yeah, give me that Bob guy. And he wanted you in it. And there you are filming a Star Wars movie. George is rolling the cameras. What would you like him to say to you after he yells cut when you wrap up? Well done, now good and faithful servant. <laughs> <laughs> Well done, now good and faithful servant. I like that. That's great, Bob. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, what a uh, what a, that was. That's one of the best questionnaires we've had here on Rebel Force Radio. The book is yeah. the Star Wars Historical Source Book. You can get it. It's available, of course, on Amazon. Uh, it's available as a digital version. You can, so you can get it on your Kindle. And uh, as Jim said, it's one of those. Uh, it, it's a bit of a a trap because you just open it up anywhere and no matter where it is, you just start reading and then you just keep going and keep going and keep going. So it's really, really well done. And, and, and Bob, please keep us in mind as the, uh, are you, is this a trilogy? Well, it's no, it's, it's, it'll be several volumes because I'm going to go all the way up to the year 1990 on this. Oh, oh yeah. So you're doing the whole yeah, song. Volume two. Oh well, yeah. The whole two original is- trilogy. That's right. And and basically volume two is going to cover up to June, you know, from January to June of 77. Wow. Great. Well, please keep us in mind. And uh, we'd love to have you back here on Rebel Force Radio. Thank you very much, guys. You, you, you two rock. Oh, thanks, Bob. You're thanks, the best. Bob. All right. Thanks again. Chewie, get us out of here. that's going to wrap things up for us this week thank you for joining us hope you enjoyed that breakdown of the Mandalorian trailer and then of course uh, chatting with our pal WR Bob Miller 
take a you don't want to miss the Star Wars historical source book. Check it out. It's on Amazon. You're going to love it. It's great for the Star Wars scholar. The citations, the reference ability of it is fantastic. Another thing you don't want to miss is Rebel Force Radio on Patreon. You can get access to all things and everything. Rebel Force Radio on Patreon. You never miss an episode of our bonus content like RFR Rush Hour, RFR Rewind, RFR Q&A, giveaways, early access to Rebel Force Radio events, and so much more. Also, we'd love to have you play with us in between shows. You can send us an email, show at rebelforceradio.com, or leave us a voicemail, 708-320-1RFR. That's 708-320-1737. We're also on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And don't forget about the Rebel Force Radio YouTube channel. Please subscribe and ring that bell, that notification bell that lets you know that something new has dropped from Rebel Force Radio over on RFR YouTube. The official website, of course, rebelforceradio.com. You can go there for all of our previous episodes, uh, news about what's going on behind the scenes here at Rebel Force Radio, merchandise like RFR t-shirts, coffee mugs, so much more. That's all there at Rebel Force Radio. Dot com. We're also streaming. You can find us just about anywhere you can find podcasts. Streaming online at WGNplus.com, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, you name it. We're there. Also, would love to have your subscription on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast of choice. That's it. We'll see you next week. For Rebel Force Radio, I'm Jason. I'm Jimmy Mack. And remember, the Force will be with you. Always. Make it good.